Hello, it's Neil here and welcome back to the Cephi podcast. Today's guest is Chris Smith from GCU in Scotland, who shares his insights on work-based learning. Higher education is facing new challenges and opportunities to collaborate with industry and Chris has a wealth of experience in developing these partnerships spanning three continents. Welcome to the European Engineering Educators podcast by Cephi, the European Society for Engineering Education. Our mission is to develop and improve engineering education and strengthen its image in society. So Neil, this is a topic I feel quite strongly about. I think there's there's a, a lot because of my own experience after graduating. Yeah. Um, I'm feeling a sort of massive gap between the education and sort of engineering and practice. And this definitely influences the way I work and the way I teach now. So, for example, um, I've co-created assessment with industry. Yeah. I've been quite involved in organisation of sort of industrial advisory boards um, who sort of help form our curriculum. Um, and I've also been involved in mentoring sort of urine industry students as well. Um, however, I have sort of experienced some of the difficulties in communicating with industry where maybe we've got slightly different expectations. Yeah. Uh, different realities and so I'm hoping to learn a bit uh, more about better ways of working. What's your experience been? Well I, I have similar experiences and done similar things um, to you in this area and I think in my experience uh, many engineering educators um, you know have research backgrounds not necessarily worked in industry or like me did but a long time ago and, and I just think regardless not every industry experience and culture is the same. Yeah of course. So, so sort of the environment that engineering's practiced in in industry, from my experience, you know, at scale with sort of robust tool sets to international standards in large teams accountable to the bottom line. I, I just think it's very different to this more sort of scholarly university life that we enjoy. So, so sort of learning engineering um, to a degree level in the context where it's going to be practiced, I think it's clearly going to lead to different outcomes and types of engineering graduates so why isn't this work-based learning more common or indeed the de facto way of uh, studying engineering i'm interested to hear what insights chris can give us today on that chris welcome thank you so much for joining us today it's lovely to be here thank you so much for asking me Right. So Professor Chris Smith is from Glasgow Caledonian University in Scotland, the UK. He has an international reputation in work-based learning across Europe, Africa and India. In the 2000s, his prolific decade-long research collaborations with opto, electronic and photonic industry gave him direct experience of engineering graduate employment practices. Since re-entering academia, he's designed flexible work-based learning programmes. His current research interests include improving university access to people with professional experience. So Chris, you've had a very varied career. Um, why did you make that step back into academia? I missed the academic colleagues was part of the answer. Mm. But as you said in your introduction, I was heavily involved in recruiting engineering graduates and could see these very capable individuals emerging from great universities with engineering degrees at undergraduate and postgraduate levels, but then struggling to settle into the world of work mm. in terms of the practical activities that they needed to undertake. And that provoked that question in my head of, why have we got to this place? 
why is industry and academia not collaborating more? And that's really what drove me back to go into academia mm. to try and look and address this from the inside rather than sitting outside. Yeah, great. Hi, Chris. Hi, Neil. Um, so you're from Glasgow Caledonian University in Scotland. Um, it was founded in 1993 when Queen's College and Glasgow Polytechnic merged. It has approximately 18,000 students, 1,500 staff, and its founding motto was For the Common Wheel, spelt W-E-A-L, and today it calls itself the University for the Common Good. So can you tell us more about engineering at GCU? I'd be delighted to, and well done on the pronunciation of <laughs> wheel um, and spelling that out for everybody. <laughs> But for those that are non-native Scottish speakers, wheel yeah. is just another word for good. So engineering uh, at GCUs is quite a diverse area. Uh, it is housed in uh, one of the three main schools of the university uh, in the School for Computing, Engineering and Built Environment. It, it doesn't just have a long uh, history in offering full-time employment, but also in offering part-time provision uh, and has offered part-time pr programs in engineering for over 25 years and obviously is a key part of the university in that the school trying to reach and support engineers, not just young people leaving school, but mm. those that have been in the industry that desire to uh, upskill themselves to, to get new knowledge and new qualifications. And that's some in ways has very naturally led on to the university moving into the graduate apprenticeship area. So GCU is currently the largest by number provider uh, of graduate apprenticeships in Scotland. Um, so those of you that may not know what a graduate apprenticeship is, this is a, a set of programs that really involve a student being employed a, a, by a company and as part of that apprenticeship, uh, undertaking a degree at university. Mm. Well, that's great. So, I mean, what you're referring to there is very much what you're here today to talk about, which is elements of work-based learning. So before we discuss your work in, in this area, could you define to us what this term work-based learning means in the context of engineering education? Absolutely. So I think that where I want to start is acknowledging that work-based learning as a term means different things to different people. Yeah. But to me, work-based learning is about a collaboration, a partnership in education that focuses on allowing an individual, um, whether that be somebody in a full-time or part-time program, to engage in authentic learning, something that equips them with theories, but also understanding the context in which they're going to practice those. So there's a kind of triadic relationship between an education institute the students that are studying and the work context in, in the form often of an employer. So to try and make this a bit more tangible, uh, examples of work-based learning could, that fall under this term include internships and placement. So often our full-time students will take some time in industry yeah. uh, of different lengths and, and degrees. We've discussed apprenticeships already. Uh, it could be continuing professional development, CPD courses. It might be industry project work. It could be really bespoke co-design programs as well, where that level of collaboration goes to a higher level. So, Chris, it seems like um, a lot of benefits of this sort of work-based learning is sort of focused on the 
types of skills that our graduates have going into the workplace and really developing what we need for the engineering workforce. Um, I'm wondering if you could sort of tell me about some of the other benefits and sort of how the role of work-based learning is seen as part of like the wider education system. Great question. Thank you for, for asking that. I think this debate, you know, this move uh, and the desire for work-based learning is really important for you know many different reasons. Mm -hmm. Many countries are, are tightening their budgets um, in education generally, but increasingly at higher education. Um, and raising also the question of what is the role of universities? Are they bastions of knowledge or do they serve a more civic purpose? You know? mm. uh, and therefore, there's many debates about whether students should be learning generic competencies and critical thinking or whether it should be more aligned to the workforce. And that debate will roll on, I, I suspect, for many decades still. We're very well aware of the, the need to address some big, global challenges. Um, and I think we know across the whole of engineering education, that's driving all of us to think about our own practices. So I, I think that we need to think about university education in that sense as well, in terms of you know how is it aligning, how is it equipping students to cope with these challenges? Mm. Um, but I think equally, we have to reflect that we will have practicing engineers in the 30s, 40s and 50s that still have many good years left in their career. How do we help them to be better prepared to take on these challenges and use their fantastic knowledge and skills to really make a difference in this world. Yeah, so bringing in lifelong learning, I, I suppose. So you spoke about the, you know, that different people sort of interpret this term um, in different ways. And I'm wondering if you could give us sort of specific examples of the ways that different engineering programs sort of globally have introduced work-based learning into their, their schemes. Yeah, there can be many ways to do that. We've already mentioned about uh, internships. You know, mm -hmm. so it, it, some programs will have an opportunity for some, but uh, sometimes not all students to have that opportunity. So there's an, an equity issue there in some ways. I think also institutions have started to um, bring in. You know, uh, simulation can be an interesting example. Um, I think that they also start to bring in real industry projects and i think there's a degree of authenticity that that brings particularly if the industry partner isn't just passing over the problem to the university to deal with in a module and then hand back but if there's that more active engagement uh, and therefore the opportunity for the the students to engage with the, the, the folk in industry it's little simple things i think that make a difference here but how do you communicate uh, as a student with somebody in industry do you know how to do that where do you learn how to do that, yeah. you know, before you, you arrive on your first job? So so I, I think the thing to highlight here in work-based learning, and, and I think partly what makes it so interesting, but equally uh, it's so difficult to nail down, is that there's so many different ways of doing this, mm. um, and that therefore there's no one-size-fits-all. But each program team or each institution actually has to make a conscious, I hope a conscious decision about yeah. how it wants to do this and what can it resource and what vision might it have for what it's trying to achieve through this, mm -hmm. often in an iterative way. So from what you're saying, Chris, work-based learning itself is not a sort of single uh, concept or type and encompasses many different things. In your work, um, you've referred to uh, 
what's called Gray's topology of work-based learning to help us better understand these different types. Could you explain this for us? Yeah, I'd be delighted to. Um, I think it, it helps, as we say, make that conversation again on the same page. So yeah. Gray talked about three different things for work, at work, and through work. Right. So in his mind, for work included things like work placements, internships, or preparing somebody for work. Yeah. At work was about company in-house training programs. And this could be seen to be non-formal learning and including aspects of informal learning. Yeah. And the final thing is about through work, which mm. I see as learning through work activities and relating this to education. Uh, so this could be a program that balanced that formal learning, the things that universities do very well yeah. with company activities and learning. Uh, so whether that is the experience of on the job, on hands, on project type of activities. But I do think in engineering program design and curriculum development, we do feel uncomfortable with informal and workplace learning, particularly in higher education. Because when we try to match that back to our external quality standards for program accreditation, we often are trying to sort of say, but how are we going to show this? And how are we going to show yeah. equivalence? And we get mm. worried about questions that might be asked. Perhaps we just need to be a bit more courageous and sort of say, let's do the right thing. And we'll have the conversation mm. with the accreditation bodies when that comes up. So what are some of the things that we might consider when we're starting to think about designing work-based learning programs? Where do we start? It's a really good question. And I think one mm. that changes from project to project. Um, and so in my mind would be things like how much interaction you know, can there be in both parties? You know, mm. So have you freed up academic time to do this? Yeah. Does industry have enough time? How much time do they have to, to be involved mm. uh, in this? Um, I think being clear about what the parties are looking to achieve from this. Mm. And within the work that we do here at GCU, we partner with Transnet uh, in South Africa. That, you know, they're a very large parastatal organization, and that's a one-to-one -one relationship. So when we design, we're very much looking uh, at how is this education supporting their people to align to their strategy. I think also we have to think about readiness of the partners to move forward with this. Uh, Working and partnering with industry can be a new experience for both academics as equally yeah. for industry partners. Um, and so do they have the, the confidence to do this? You so there's some literature on work-based learning that might help us develop this. And a key work in this area is that of uh, Ferrandez, Bureko, Kikail and Devins, who looked at 14 work-based learning programs across Europe and came up with a popular framework for better understanding these different stages and stakeholder interactions. Um, could you describe this framework to us? Yeah, I'd be delighted to. It, it's yeah. it's it's really good. You found that article. <laughs> it it's one that you know I, I refer to quite a lot myself. It it's it's and in terms of thinking, if someone wants to get a, an idea for the sort of things to look at, it's maybe a good place to start for somebody new to this area as well. Mm. So the article you know, tried to look at developing curriculum um, and looked at the idea of using Deming cycles, a plan, do, check, act uh, sort of concept in terms of curriculum design. And they mm. adapted that to a kind of four-stage model, which was looking at the market needs, yeah. planning and designing, 
delivering yeah. and then the evaluation. And you imagine this is an ongoing cycle yeah, uh, of, of iteration. And then they sort of said, well, actually, they wanted to take a student-focused aspect to this. And so uh, diagrammatically, if you look at the paper, they then saw, well, what sits inside this? And you know, yeah. what are the key pillars, as they call it, that are important in work-based learning? And they identified three. Hmm. They identified organizations and yeah. there's the curriculum involved. Hmm. So the idea of, well, what are we teaching and what are we learning? Hmm. And there are people yeah. uh, that need to be in interacting this, the students, the people in industry and the academics. Yeah, And so they see these as being three dimensions that need to be considered uh, in work-based learning programs. And yeah. so they talked about the interaction between organizations and curriculum, and they called that doctrine. So what is the balance between market needs, i.e. what's industry screaming for or wants? Yeah. Uh, and what does uh, do academics need to deliver, perhaps because of their benchmark statements? And inevitably, there's a tension there. And, yeah. And that needs to be ironed out in discussions. Um, uh, we've seen examples in the UK, I think, where too much power has gone one way or the other. And, and yeah. that, I think, in some way, leads to not the optimal output for anybody. So Chris, you, you just described this framework, which includes industry or employers, higher edu education institutions and students, as well as the curriculum. Uh, can you tell us more about the relationships between them and how they all work together? You've heard me use the word triadic yes. already. Maybe that's yeah. going to be the, the repeating word throughout this <laughs> uh, this podcast. Sometimes it's called tripartite, but it's very much right. that there's a balance between the learner, the student, the university, and the place of work or, or mm. the employer. Um, and that exists to, to varying degrees. Um, there are opportunities and challenge in this. You know, how mm. much collaboration can there? How much collaboration should there be between yeah. these different parties? Um, and how do we know where we are in terms of you know, collaboration? Are we in a, a very symbiotic collaboration and partnership, or are we quite detached and perhaps not uh, aligned and not speaking the same uh, language? And I suppose in my my own work, um, I started to look well, you know, other analogies. How have people looked at this? Uh, and you know, as we often do in academia, we adapt models or try to translate them into different contexts. And so when we think about this, we think about co-creation and co-production uh, and the level of participation. So if we look at your know, co-creation, uh, okay. then there's some really interesting work that was done, particularly between students and faculty uh, in terms of co-creating curriculum. Uh, and in some instances, people have then looked at uh, and used a previous model, you know, called Arnstein's Ladder of Participation, uh, which is trying to look at who has the power and how much power do they have in that relationship to actually genuinely participate and uh, impact change. Okay, so I mean, we'll, we can come on to that now, this idea of um, co-creation. So work-based learning, and if we're going to do this through work, work-based learning, um, we're going to have uh, elements of co-creation, co-creation between us and students and co-creation between us and industry partners. And there's this Arnstein's ladder of participation to help us define that. So could you describe this Arnstein's ladder of participation? It's quite an old but still used framework, isn't it? So Arnstein outlined a ladder of participation. Right. Um, 
So I want you to picture a ladder with eight levels. Eight rungs. Yeah. You, yeah, okay. Yeah. And the bottom rung of that ladder is the lowest level, you know, of participation, you know, of, yeah. in, in Arnstein's case of the citizens actively participating in any project. Right. Um, and Arnstein dubbed that manipulation. Um, right. With the top rung being actually citizens being fully involved and, and Einstein used the term citizen control. Uh, mm. So so envisage rung one is the starter in yeah. any perhaps maturity to greater involvement. So is kind of non-participation and run it really demonstrate the citizens being involved. Right. Um, so if we're working from our bottom up, then Einstein mm. grouped, you know, uh, <laughs> bottom grouping was called non-participation includes rungs one and two, which were called manipulation and therapy. Right. The middle group, the second grouping is called degrees of tokenism mm. and covers the three rungs from, you know, rung three, four, and five, okay. uh, which, and then the uppermost group was dubbed degrees of citizen power, uh, which oh, covers, okay. covers rungs, you know, six to eight. So one of the ways um, to think about this is, is the, you know, as you climb up the ladder, you get more power. And then for any given interaction, you can actually say, well, well, this part, this collaboration is on this particular rung of the ladder from observing its characteristics. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So it sounds to me like um, this is quite a powerful tool in, in itself um, for, uh, for making sure that actually these interactions are meaningful. Do we always want to be at the top level of these, of this ladder? in this work-based learning sort of design space? Ab absolutely not. Um, <laughs> right. I, you know, I, I think what's really good is that this ladder encourages a, a mapping. You can start to think about, well, where are you? Right. Uh, is that where you want to be, you know, as a, as a program team, as an institution? Um, do you want to, to go somewhere else? But equally, it might spark ideas about, hmm, we're very good at this level, but I see that we could, uh, with our industry partners, or we see a new opportunity, but actually the solution to this from an educational standpoint is actually yeah. a different form of collaboration. Um, so it's not about trying to standardize what you do as an institution. Perhaps it's just about trying to find uh, and diagnose where certain things would best sit. So Chris, as we sort of move up the ladder, some of the activities we might get involved in are things like informing, consulting, and in some of your work, you refer to this as sort of tokenism. So I'm just wondering if you could give us some examples of the kind of work that goes on at this level of the ladder. Keeping in mind that there's kind of this frame of, of ladders, I imagine. Um, if we're then looking at student participation and this and their agency uh, at the tokenism, this could maybe be, you know, choosing something in a constrained way. So from an industry perspective, if we look at industry and the industry and academic interaction, this may be like a letter of support from industry for a program change. Uh -huh. Yeah, It's great the company's supportive, but does that mean that the industry partner was able to provide any key insight to this? Mm -hmm. Are they going to help support this change and, and really drive and, and help it you know, flourish? Mm -hmm. I still see the, very much the university being in control at these levels. Um, but some of that may be driven by its vision and strategy, its expertise, and also the quality assurance approaches here, mm -hmm. um, but also resourcing. Uh, it's a perennial question for us in, in universities uh, about you know, what can we do with the number of, of staff and the number of hours that we have. 
And and sometimes to drive those higher levels of collaboration, you need to free up time Mm -hmm. uh, and have the right people to be able to make that interaction work. So, Chris, how would we um, go about moving from sort of this middle part of the ladder to the top of the ladder? I'm wondering if you can maybe provide an example of where this has happened before. Yeah. Asking the question, it makes me think when I was at Coventry University mm-hmm. um, and Uniparts, which is a, a large you know, international company, raised an important question with us, which was, was there a way for what they cover in their graduate scheme? to be uh, more of that to be covered within the educational uh, program. Uh, So graduate scheme is what students go through uh, after they graduate, you know, uh, through a structured program that company feels they need to do in order to to be competent. Mm -hmm. Um, Provocative question, you know, you're using provocative frameworks. And again, here's another provocative question from industry. And, and rather than ignoring that, uh, this actually resulted in a very strong partnership in the creation of AME in Coventry um, and resulted in the design of the B-Eng and M-Eng Manufacturing Engineering Program. Mm-hmm. Um, this would definitely be at the top level, you know, uh, upper rungs uh, in terms of employer engagement as the, the curriculum was co-created. You know, we, we looked at their graduate scheme, what they were doing, and we're folding that back into the design of what was was happening sure okay so I've got two thoughts after you've said this so one is about sort of graduate training schemes that are done in the workplace and I guess some people might argue that they're sort of always needed because there's always going to be some kind of you know um, experiential skills that are quite particular to specific workplaces that graduates will need and that we're never going to be able to do everything within the education system I guess the other sort of thing I'm thinking is the degree to which then working with specific companies really molds graduates to be a specific way and skill them with very specific skills that are only maybe you know quite specific for that company do you think there's any risk of that Great question, and and one that you know, went through our minds and still does when you know mm-hmm. I'm I'm working in this space. I think that when you have such a, a strong industry partner, you have to. We come back to this idea of doctrine uh, in terms of the the framework that we discussed previously. Uh, is this just a, effectively a badged education program that's really a training program, or is it actually genuinely an engineering program um, to develop a, a well-rounded engineer? Mm-hmm. And I think that this is where the, the strength of that relationship between the university and industry comes in about having those co- conversations about, well, at the university, these are our considerations. We have to map to our benchmark statements, you know, the things that um, the engineering council or professional bodies are looking for. And I think it's trying to be open with each other about what your expectations and needs are and what your constraints are in that design process that allows you then to better understand what, where people are coming from to establish that common ground and you know, to know where your red lines are yeah. to some extent. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Chris, up to now, we've talked about work through work-based learning, defining the necessary interactions, and then making these interactions on the right rung of this ladder. What do you think are the key challenges then in this through work work work-based learning compared with traditional engineering education 
Okay, good question. Um, <laughs> um, maybe I'll start from a, a university perspective. Um, mm. Some of the challenges in this can be, as we've talked about already, are to do with the people that you have and the resourcing that you have. Mm. Um, we've talked about um, partnership. We've talked about collaboration. We've talked about having to communicate with each other. So just in those words yourself, you're realizing that's activity and time. Yeah. So therefore, um, where does that time come from in, in in a busy academics life? You know, uh, do they have a supportive dean or head of department that's like, yeah, this must be done, make it happen, give them the time to mm. to, to develop this. And if yeah. that doesn't happen, um, or the person's you know equally not motivated by this closer interaction in an educational context, yeah, then you know, you you run into challenges there. So I think that those are some of the key challenges. Um, and sometimes your university systems may not, you know, quality systems may struggle with trying to do things in a different way, or even mm. your timetabling. You know, yeah. it's just these cascade effects that you don't necessarily think about until you get to the implementation. And go, ah, how do we do this now? So, are you able to give us some sort of examples of how assessment might differ um, in a sort of a work-based learning program? So, examples in terms of assessment. Um, could be that, uh, say, you're teaching a, a module and saying analyze a particular component mm -hmm. that you allow uh, through negotiating the student to pick something relevant in their industry. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen other versions, you know, so at Harriet Watt, their modules are set up that you know, 20% of the assessment is on demonstrating an understanding of the core knowledge and principles related to the module learning outcomes. But the remaining part is done through negotiated learning contracts. So effectively, the student with their employer and the university looking, well, how can these concepts be applied in the workplace? You know, uh, so the student's actually doing meaningful activity. Mm -hmm. uh, and the student then generates a portfolio of work um, to, to then show that they've met the learning outcomes of the module. Um, mm -hmm. So coming closer to home at GCU, uh, some of my colleagues have modules of workplace learning. So this is where the apprentices is keeping a log under the supervision of their supervisor, industry mentor, mm -hmm. and recording the learning they're doing in the workplace. And mm -hmm. then that is assessed by this person in the workplace against criteria that the uh, program leader sets. So Chris, we've spoken a lot about the different sort of routes that we could take in this work-based learning sort of approach. I'm wondering what the benefits are to students. So like, how how does that present in students when they've graduated that they've studied on on this type of of course and i guess then to some degree what factors should they consider when they're picking whether they want to do a more traditional course or maybe more work work-based learning yeah good question i think it's important to bring this back to to the students because that in, in some ways is why why we come to work mm -hmm. um so to me, there can be some you know tangible benefits to this. So uh, if we allow the students through work-based learning to develop through projects competencies, then they're going to be far closer to being able to apply for professional registration. Um, you know, I think that they'll have had exposed to new experiences. So they're probably more attuned to how engineering sits in context within uh, an industrial you know, context and the needs of employers. You, we've talked obviously about 
them having these new experiences. And I think through that, they develop a whole set of meta skills, uh, whether that's about better understanding themselves and what their own capabilities might be, whether it's given them exposure to develop uh, their emotional and social skills uh, in interacting in the workplace. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about students getting to know themselves more. I hadn't really thought of that, that they, you know, they might understand what type of role they want a bit more or what type of role they don't want um, a bit more. And that's obviously a really beneficial thing to learn as well. It relates to some work that obviously colleagues in Belgium have done and presented at the last CEFI conference, uh, I think partly funded by EU Project, which is looking at this typology, these three types of engineers that they talked about. Ah, yes, yes. Um, so is somebody, in my words, more somebody that's a design jockey that's really into the, the detailed technical design? Is somebody moving more into the process you know, optimization space or are they somebody that wants to interface you know, with customers and clients? And um when you go looking for your first job, maybe you don't know which of those is actually going to be where you want to be at that time and where your strengths and passions are. Uh, so perhaps that work exposure allows that transition to be far better and therefore employers are happy, you, the, the student, the graduate is happy because they know where they're going to find the most job satisfaction. Sure, yeah. So Chris, thank you. For that conversation today, it certainly made me think about the way I work with industry in future. Um, we always finish by asking our guests to give both us and the listeners something to take back to their own context. So I'm just wondering if you've got a sort of single piece of advice or takeaway. I'm going to be a bit cheeky and say two things, but you, you know that, that that that's probably going to happen as an academic. So um, there's perhaps something... There is something that I would like to to share with you, but it's a diagrammatic format. Uh, so I'll try and briefly describe that now, but perhaps I can share that with you and that can be made available sure. uh, when you release the podcast. Um, but what I've tried to do is take that ladder uh, of Arnstein's model um, and to build in additional dimensions. So if you imagine we're trying to now not just picture one ladder, uh, mm -hmm. but I mentally picture uh, my primary school gym where they had the climbing frame with those uh, ladders <laughs> beside each other. Yeah. So now we've got one that talks about where the student is in this participation, where the uh, uh, industry is in that participation. I am trying to link to what those activities are in terms of learning and assessment might be. And you know, this tries to you know, reflect and build on Catherine Boval's work uh, and bring in some of the things that I've discussed about today when you asked me to go through, well, what's at the bottom rung of the ladder and non-participation and effectively, well, the industry wasn't involved. Uh, degrees of tokenism, that letter of support, or even a passive industry advisory board. Uh, and then moving up to, to these really co-created programmes that we've discussed through today's session. Mm -hmm. And then trying to map across some of what those authentic learning activities uh, could be within that work-based learning context that you've asked me. So I really would like to share that with you. Yeah, great. Um, and I think if I can, the second thing just cheekily at the end is, um, in my experience, if you're going down this path, have a very clear vision of what you want to achieve and achieve together. Yeah. Ideally, make sure this is aligned to your university policy and strategy, because that equates to having the right resources and structures uh, and systems in place. And then find some great people to work with. And, and people often are at the heart of what makes this work. So that's the right people in industry, you know, making sure that you're recruiting the students that know what they're getting into, 
and then having some great colleagues with you uh, in your department to make this work. And if you get it right, the results can just be so great mm -hmm. and it's so much fun. Um, so I really, you know, as you can see, I've been working and designing work-based learning programs for the last 14, 15 years now. I'm still passionate about, I can see myself being passionate about this still in 15 years time because we'll still be evolving and finding new ways to make this work even work. Great, thank you so much again for sharing that with us, Chris. Thank you everyone, bye. So Natalie, I remember when we went into this episode thinking that, you know, maybe work-based learning isn't that important. <laughs> um, higher education is a place for sort of expanding horizons. It's a relatively short period in someone's life, although quite key. And I just thought, you know, there's plenty of opportunities to get industry experience once you're in that nine to five job. Mm -hmm. But sort of after talking to Chris, I realized that, of course, you know, this is coming from a relative level of privilege. Um, and it's also about kind of lifelong learning and kind of uh, intertwining study and work so that people can kind of benefit throughout their working lives. Yeah. And, and I also thought his use of Einstein's model of participation was good. And since then, actually, you know, it, whenever I've seen any partnership and collaboration, I just found it easier to spot where the tokenism is and, you know, where that's useful. Um, so, yeah, I, I got a lot from that conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're right. That that model is really flexible and can be used in, in different scenarios, I think. And it's an old model, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I guess it has been applied to lots of different settings and scenarios. I guess what I got mainly was that I need to be maybe more strategic. Like I hadn't thought of lot, or all the different options that there could be for sort of work-based learning and how that might look and why you yeah. might sort of take on particular approaches mm. and I think I've, I've as I sort of mentioned at the the start of the episode I've tended to just sort of throw co-created assessments into modules thinking that that'll you know help with students getting an authentic experience but I think maybe I need to think more about what I want to achieve with that like what I want the role of the industrial partner to be and be a bit more strategic in in my approach and sort of thinking about how that can be a bit have a bit more longevity I guess and I guess again like you mm. said that the models that Chris introduced us to really helps with thinking in that way okay so thanks for joining us again for this episode remember um, that the show notes are available if you want a bit more detail about what we've spoken about today also if you would like to feature um, as a future guest on the podcast please do get in touch Okay, everyone. See you next time. Goodbye. Bye-bye.